There we go. That's my secretary. Uh, welcome, Corey. I see you there. Um, we're going to study uh, the gospel of uh, John, the end of chapter seven, the very last verse. Uh, and then we'll jump into chapter eight. This is a, one of a handful, not even a handful of portions of the scripture that are a little controversial, not because of what it says, but because uh, manuscript evidence-wise, most scholars think that verse 53 of John 7, all the way to verse 11, I believe it is, of, yeah, of uh, chapter 8, it was not written by John, not in the earliest and best manuscripts. Um, and so, um, the question is, well, what's going on here with all that? Let me give you the background. Well, no, I'll wait on that. Let me let me talk a little bit about disputed passages. The end of Mark is a similar one. Those are the two big ones. And this one we're going to do tonight. The story is that the oldest and best Greek manuscripts do not have this little story of the woman caught in adultery. Remember, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Virtually all of the older manuscripts before the fifth century don't include this story. Um, when, but 900 ancient manuscripts do, but the oldest and best ones don't. So um, uh, when it does show up in manuscripts, sometimes it's earlier in chapter seven, sometimes it's in chapter 21, and in one place it's in the book of Luke. The writing doesn't sound like John's writing either. So you say, well, then why are we wasting our time with it? Well, we won't be wasting our time, and I'll get to that. But I want to tell you a little bit about the Bible and manuscripts before we dive in. Uh, those of you that uh, I can see on the screen, well, all of you, say amen or wave so I know you're awake. Beautiful. Okay. So, um, Ancient manuscripts were all copied by hand. The first Bible manuscript that was copied in Greek was in the 1500s, which means for 1500 years, they copied manuscripts by hand and made copy after copy after copy. There's room for errors there. We'll talk about that in a second, but it's nothing to worry about. Okay, so most of you have heard of Aristotle. You've heard of Plato. Those are ancient manuscripts written by philosophers. There are a total of 49 manuscripts, that's it, of Plato, seven, uh, sorry, seven of Plato, 49 of Aristotle. Um, the one with the biggest number is um, Homer, 643 ancient manuscripts. That's pretty good, except the oldest one is a thousand years after he wrote. But nobody questions those things. Um, Caesar's history of the Roman Empire there's only 20 manuscripts, and yet nobody questions the history. What's your point, Joe? My point is this. For the New Testament, for the Bible, 25,000 manuscripts. That's good news because we can compare them and easily figure out what was in the original uh, text. Anyway, um, so... This story is not in most of the oldest and best manuscripts, but let's keep talking about manuscripts for one more second, then we'll move on. What about all these manuscripts? Are they all exactly alike? No. There's uh, 150 to 200,000 variations, changes, mistakes. Oh, that's a little scary. 
99.9% of them are a misspelled word or word order that's reversed. This one says Christ Jesus. That one says Jesus Christ. So no meaning, no doctrine is ever affected. Um, this is one of those passages that's a little controversial for that reason. I, as I said, over 900 ancient manuscripts do have it. Now, there was a guy named Papias. Um, who knew John and was a co-pastor with John when he was very old at the church in Ephesus. Papias, early second century, mentions this story. Most scholars think John didn't write it, but that it really happened, and that it was orally passed on verbally, and that scribes knew about it, and they didn't include it in John, but when they did, they didn't know quite where to put it and what have you. One other thing, why would it not be in the Gospel of John? And there's one reason. In the early Christian church, they were very strict about sexual immorality, very strict, which is a good thing to be strict. Some saw this story as Jesus sounding like he's very loose with sexual sexual immorality. Neither do I condemn you, he says. And they thought, oh, that's going to imply to some people Jesus goes easy on or doesn't care about immorality. So that might be a reason why it's not in some manuscripts. We just don't really know. Um, I meant to mention that we may meet next week in person or we may do this again. I'm waiting to hear because we got seven people with COVID in our uh, church so far. Okay, let's dive in. Jesus is at the temple. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. That's where we are at the end of chapter seven. Um, it's at the very end of that feast. Who he is, Jesus's identity is still the big thing in the Gospel of John. Um, we're about a little less than six months before the cross. So it's the tail end of his ministry. Um, we're going to see a real debate later on in this chapter. People are the Pharisees, the religious leaders are really hating him more and more. A lot of opposition from them. Um, okay, the woman caught in adultery. So chapter seven ends with verse 53. The, uh, let's see. Yeah. Then each went to his own home. I forgot to mention one last thing. In virtually every Bible, this section has an asterisk, is written in brackets, is written in italics, has the note, if you look at the bottom of the page, the earliest and best manuscripts do not contain this little passage. We already covered that. I just wanted to let you know, nobody's hiding anything. Bibles always, virtually always say what I just told you, that the best manuscripts don't have it. But we're going to study it because I believe it happened. It's all in character with the person of Jesus Christ. No doctrine is controverted or contradicted, and um, it fits a pattern. In chapter 5, there's an incident and then a sermon by Jesus. 6, same thing. Chapter 7, same thing. So this fits that context that in chapter eight, there would be this incident and then a sermon by Jesus. Let's dive in. Verse 53, then each went to his own home. That could be each of the people that were arguing with Jesus or the people that were there for the Feast of Tabernacles, but probably the Feast of Tabernacles is not quite over. I'll show you why in a second. So, um, they go home. Verse one of chapter eight, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. We know that the, in Passion Week, the week he died, 
um, right after the uh, Palm Sunday thing, riding in on a donkey, that his disciples spent that week there, Passover week, staying in the Mount of Olives, sleeping outside. Um, so it may be that that was his headquarters and he went up under those trees often. And that's why he went to the Mount of Olives, verse one, um, which is just across, not far from Jerusalem, where the temple is. Verse two, at dawn, he, that's Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people, where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Keep in mind, he's had death threats. They want to kill him, the religious leaders. He knows until his time is up, God will decree that. They can't harm him. So he's very boldly teaching in the temple courts, which would be outdoors. Um, a lot of people there for the Feast of Tabernacles. Notice all the people that are gathered around him. There are other rabbis trying to get little followings over there and over here. Jesus has the big crowd. They all want to hear him. And he sits down to teach them. That's the normal posture of a rabbi. They would sit when they taught. Most pastors stand up when they give a sermon. I'm lazy, so I'm sitting down right now. Anyway, so he's going to sit down and teach the people. But he's interrupted by the religious leaders, the verse three, the teachers of the law or the uh, yeah, teachers of the law and the Pharisees. These are, these are the hypocritical religious leaders of Judaism who hate him and see him as a threat and a fake Messiah. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group or set her before the group. Probably they sat her down on the ground before the group. Stand really is, is a bad translation. It's really they just set her in the middle of the group. So they interrupt the little lesson, if you will. He's got a huge crowd of people listening. They bring this woman caught in adultery. And she's standing before the group in verse three. So this is... Um, a setup. It's a trap. And John knows it. And he's going to um, mention that in verse six, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So let's go back to three. Let's read three, four, and five. Uh, teachers of the law, they bring a woman, woman caught in adultery. She's set before the group. Verse four, and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Uh, in the Greek, it reads, caught in adultery. In the very act, they want him to know that. In the law, in the law of Moses, in the law, sorry, Moses commanded us to stone such. The word women is implied. Now, what do you say? So they're trying to trap him. Do you remember when the Pharisees said to him, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's in the Gospel of Matthew. What's going on there is they think they've got him. If he says, no, don't pay your taxes to Caesar, they'll tell the Romans who will arrest him. If he says, yes, pay your taxes to Rome and to Caesar, the Jews will hate him. If you remember that, they think they've got him in a conundrum. What he says there is render to Caesar, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, give to God the things that are God's. And they go away baffled. He blows their minds. He's going to do the same thing here, but in a different way. So he's teaching that he's interrupted by a woman caught in adultery in the very act. Well, Old Testament, uh, Leviticus, and I believe Deuteronomy talk about if somebody's caught in adultery. These were almost impossible cases to prove. Here's why. 
You had to have two witnesses, at least, who saw the very act of adultery. It wasn't enough to see two a man and a woman come out of a room. It wasn't enough to see them laying down together. You had to see the actual act. It's pretty amazing, the stringent evidence that was needed. There had to be two witnesses. The witnesses had to agree 100%. If this guy's story was different from that guy's story, interviewed separately, they would throw the case out. So usually, if somebody was caught in the act of adultery, they were staking out the place watching, or they set it up, which kind of is implied here. They set up the whole thing. This poor woman, she is a sinner. I don't mean to uh, underestimate that or talk that down. She's a sinner. There's no question. She's taught in, caught in the act of adultery. Jesus never asks her, did you do it? He knows. She did. In fact, he tells her to leave her life of sin. We'll get to that in a second. But in the Old Testament, the penalty was stoning for both people, the man and the woman. I don't need to draw you a picture to make you understand that you can't commit adultery by yourself. So she was caught in the very act. Where's the man? Did they know him? Did they let him go because they knew him? Maybe he was a big donor to the temple. Did he escape? Then why are they bringing her without the man? Because it's a setup. This poor woman, if she's caught in the very act, she's maybe dressed with almost nothing on. She might be wrapped in a sheet. She's probably crying. They probably didn't escort her gently. They probably dragged her there and she didn't want to be there. She's embarrassed because she's in front of this big crowd all of a sudden and everybody knows what she did. She's embarrassed because she's in front of Jesus, whether she knows who he is or not, we don't know. But there's one little hint I'll show you. But He's the one with no sin that's going to judge the whole world. And so they bring this woman to uh, Jesus. They think they've got him again. If he says, yes, stone her, that doesn't fit his gracious, loving, friend of sinners, forgiving way he's been so far. But on the other hand, if he says, no, don't stone her, let her go, then he's loose on the Mosaic law and he can't be the Messiah. The Messiah will fulfill the law and keep the law. So they think they've got him either way, no matter what he says. They're probably hoping that he throws the first stone. But the rules back in the Old Testament were, as I already told you, two witnesses. They had to witness the actual act and both of them had to be free of that sin, <clears throat> excuse me, adultery or lust or whatever. Furthermore, those two witnesses not only had to agree completely, but they had to throw the first stones. The witnesses, they're asking Jesus, what do we do here? So the man is not present. The whole thing is a travesty. Um, yeah, it's Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22 for where they talk about that. In verse, um, uh, let's see, in verse four, they call him rabbi. NIV has teacher. They're calling him rabbi. It's very, they're buttering him up. She was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded to stone such. That's how it reads in the Greek. But the such word is feminine. In other words, to stone such women. But that's not what the law says. It says to stone both of them, the man and the woman. So what do you, now what do you say? 
They're asking him to be judge and jury. By the way, if he says stone her, he can get in trouble with the Romans because the Jews under Roman law don't have the right to capital punishment. They can't really stone her. If he says stoner, he can get, they can report him to the Roman government. That's why when they're going to crucify Jesus, they have to take him to Pontius Pilate and get him to buy into the whole fake charges thing because they don't have the right to capital punishment anymore. Um, just looking at notes here. Okay. So that's the little setup and they, they're sure they've got him on this one. Now, what do you say? Verse six. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Let's stop there. Do you know what that verse actually says? Why are they doing this? To get something on him, which implies what? They have nothing. They have no charge against him. They can't find any sin in his life. They've done the background checks online. No, I'm just kidding. But they can't find any sin because the guy is sinless. So they're trying to use trumped up charges, make him commit a crime, if you will. So the end of verse six says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground or in the dirt with his finger. What's going on here? Kind of unusual, don't you think? They asked him a question. He basically ignores them. But I want you to notice they, the Pharisees, are judging this woman, okay, who's on the ground, probably crying, scantily clothed, clothed, very embarrassed, very shamed. They're judging her like this from above. Jesus is seated teaching, and he's even from the seated position going to stoop down to her level. He identifies, Jesus does, with sinners. He doesn't want to be on their level judging her from above. He stoops down. That's the first thing, a very humble position. And then it says he writes on the ground. Um, the word for write uh, is katagrapho in Greek. And it can mean writes, like writes words with his finger. It can mean he could be just doodling. It, it can also be if he's drawing a picture. Okay. So I know what you're thinking. Well, what did he write? This, by the way, is the only place in the whole Bible where Jesus, it says he wrote something. Had Jesus written a book, don't you know it would be the gospel according to Jesus or the epistle to, of Jesus, the letter of Jesus to the church? And that's the one we would concentrate on. He let his disciples write the Bible, right? We don't have any record of what he wrote. John didn't think it was important enough to tell us, but I got to tell you, I must have looked at 10 commentaries. There's a hundred opinions about what he wrote down or if he wrote anything. Some think he's just stalling for time, showing them that he doesn't think they're worthy of even a reply, or he's trying to make them think about what they're doing. Okay. Um, theories of uh, what he wrote. Some of these are pretty good. Who knows? Exodus 23, 1. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. That kind of cuts to the chase, doesn't it? Who knows? Did he write down, some, some scholars think he wrote down the sins of all the accusers, which he would know because he's all-knowing. Um, 
Bob Deffenbaugh in his commentary wrote, he, there's no way he wrote down the sins of the accusers. There wouldn't be enough dirt and he'd still be writing, right? So uh, there's all kinds of theories about what he wrote. Some say he wrote the names of each of the accusers down because he would know that supernaturally. This is my theory. I won't sell it that hard, but I kind of like it. Notice what he did. He wrote with his finger. Is there anywhere else in the whole Bible where someone writes with his finger? And the answer is yes. Old Testament, God writes with his finger in the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. Some people think that Jesus, showing that he's God, again writes with his finger and writes down the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not have any gods before me. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Who knows what he wrote? The point is, if John thought it was important, he would have told us. But the stalling tactic, if that's all it is, does work. So go back to verse six. He starts to write on the ground with his finger. I don't know how long this took. It could have been five minutes of silence. It could have been 20 or just a minute, but he's making them think. Verse seven. When they kept on questioning him, because he's writing in the dirt for a while, it sounds like, and they're going, well, what do you say? What do you say? Verse seven, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. King James, I think, is let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, this is unbelievably ingenious. Uh, of Jesus. Here's why. Number one, this is what was commanded in the law. The ones that didn't have the sin of adultery, which they're accusing of, they're supposed to cast the first stone. But he's asking all of them in a broad sense, whichever one of you, holier than thou Pharisee types, which were, whichever one of you has no sin without sin, you throw the first stone. In doing this, He's judging them instead of the woman because he knows what phonies they are and will watch and see how it really uh, works incredibly. We know that they're as guilty as, the, as she is. She, they staged this whole thing in some way. If they throw a stone, if someone says, all right, give me a stone, I'll throw it. They're claiming to be without sin, which is a lie, which makes them sinners. Hello right? One by one, they're all going to go away. We'll see in a second. But also, um, they're asking him to judge. And yeah, he's acting as the judge of them, but he's also acting as her defense attorney, not defending the sin, but defending her against the hypocrisy that just wants to trap him. And she's a pawn. She's being used, if you will. By the way, parenthetically, who could throw the first stone? There is somebody there. Jesus, he's without sin. He could say, give me a stone. I'm without sin. I'll do it. Right? They haven't been able to find any charge against him, but you know him. He would not do that. He's so gracious here. He's so ingenious here. He knows that they have the greater sin, their hypocrisy, and there is the greatest sin of all, which they have too, which is unbelief. That's the greatest sin. That's the sin that sends people to hell ultimately, not believing in the one 
true savior. Um, there's another sin going on here, and that's the human desire to point out other people's faults when we have our own faults. Have you ever heard that when you point your finger at someone accusingly, it makes several other fingers point back at you? They want to punish the sin of others, ignoring their own sin. Remember David and Nathan in, uh, in the book of 2 Samuel 12, Nathan tells David the story. There was a man who had a pet lamb and another man came and stole the lamb. And David says, that's terrible. That man should die. I'm giving you the simple version. And Nathan says, you are the man because he had stolen somebody's wife. Remember uh, Uriah's wife. So Jesus could have thrown the stone. No way would he. He's showing unbelievably uh, a lot of grace. They bring to him the situation based on the Old Testament, Old Covenant law. He is instituting the New Covenant, which is grace. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 9. At this, so he just said, whoever's without sin, let him cast the first stone. You throw the first stone if you're sinless. Verse 9. At this, those who, th those who heard began to go away one at a time. I think this took several minutes. It says the oldest went first until only Jesus was left. Why the oldest first? Maybe they have a more tender conscience. Maybe they sinned more. They're older. Maybe they're wiser. One by one, they drop their stones. They walk away. It's all silent. The crowd is watching listening. Some think, some scholars think not only did the Pharisees go away, maybe even the whole crowd went away because they knew they weren't without sin. I kind of think the crowd is still there. Certainly the uh, apostles are still there because somebody heard the story and remembered it. So uh, with only the woman still there, end of verse nine, verse 10, Jesus straightened up, meaning what? He was stooping down to her level again. And he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Um, by the way, I, I skipped verse eight. I apologize. He stooped down and wrote on the ground again. Uh, another little stalling tactic. Let him without sin be the first to cast a stone. He writes on the ground, quiet again. Let him think about it. So he finally asks her in verse 10, woman. And that's not an impolite way to address a woman in that. Uh, it's like saying, ma'am, very polite. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And whenever there's a question, we like to answer it. Where are they? They all, all those accusers just left. And by doing so, do you know what they admitted? That they were sinners. Jesus didn't leave because he's not. So he says, did they all, where are they? And the answer is they left because they are sinners. Has no one condemned you? The answer to that question is, no, that's not correct. Because God would. And Jesus could. Has no one condemned you? Verse 11. No one, sir, NIV has. Literally, it's no one, Lord. Does this woman fully understand who Jesus is? I don't know. Does she believe? I don't know. But the hint is, she says, no one, Lord. Is that an indication she believes? I don't know. But she says, probably no one condemned me. 
Jesus answers, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, period. If that was it, you could say, oh, he's soft on this sexual sin thing. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. King James has sin no more. Greek, the way it reads, is just like that. Leave your life of sin. Stop your life of sin. Make a U-turn on the road of life. Repent. That's what he tells her. He graciously offers her a chance to change her life, repent, and be convicted, and be forgiven. Um, that's the end of the story, but I want to go through a couple of quick things. We already said Jesus acts as her defense attorney and also the judge who dismisses the case. Why? Because there's only one witness left, and that's Jesus. He is sinless. He could judge her. He knows her sins, and all the sins of her accusers are left. But he came to the earth the first time, not to judge, to save. That's why he offers her the chance to repent. Keep in mind, this woman and every other human being, including the Pharisees, including you, me, we're all going to stand before Jesus in one or one of two conditions. Oh, no, I'm going to have to answer for my sin or, oh, yes, here's my savior, the Lord Jesus, who took my sin and my guilt. Which one sounds better to you? I don't know what happened to this woman. We're not told, but I believe, and a lot of scholars believe that ancient story is true. Okay. A couple more um, quick po points. He tells her to leave her life of sin. How can Jesus, who is God in human flesh, who wrote the Old Testament, which says somebody caught in adultery, they need to die for it. How can he, this is basically what he's doing, forgive her? Okay. And the answer is a little less than six months from now, he's going to the cross where he will die for the sins of the world, including the sin of adultery this woman committed. We don't know where the man is, as I said, it's a, the whole thing's a travesty, but that's how he is going to take her guilt, die in her place, not law, but grace. Um, those two things don't compete. They complement one another. Law is the x-ray that shows you the problem in, with your health. Grace is the medicine, Jesus Christ, that heals us because he takes the sickness, the penalty, the sin. It's a beautiful thing. Um, conviction always comes before conversion. Until you're aware of your own sin and that you can't um, save yourself or fully repent on your own, you'll never come to Jesus because you don't see the need. Just like if you're not thirsty, you don't drink. If you're not hungry, you don't eat. Well, I eat even when I'm not hungry. Anyway, um, that's the little story. Um, is it a part of the gospel of John in our Bibles? Yes. Did John write it? Almost every scholar I could read says no. Is it true? And was it passed down through the centuries? I believe it is. Uh, and it's a beautiful story of grace, isn't it? That's the story. Now there's a teaching which fits the pattern of the gospel of John. Let's keep reading, shall we? Now, verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, because remember, he was interrupted, if this happened then, he said to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Okay. You say, well, that's a nice little saying. I got to give you a little background on the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay. At the very end of the Feast of Tabernacles, to, to commemorate the fact that God led the Israelites out of Egypt through the wilderness as a pillar of fire, remember, um, to light their way that they would follow God. Remember all that? Okay. In the Feast of Tabernacles, to commemorate that, they had the lamp lighting ceremony. Uh, most scholars think every night, okay, it gets dark, the lamp lighting ceremony. The priest would light three huge torches on um, a giant menorah lampstand, and it was so bright with fire, it would light up the whole temple grounds and even the surrounding streets and neighborhood because it was up high. This would take place in the women's, the court of the women or the treasury, same thing, of the temple, outdoor area, gathering area. It would light the whole place up. People, to commemorate the light that God gave them of that torch, would carry smaller uh, of that, I'm sorry, that pillar of fire, would carry smaller torches. They would sing um, some of the Psalms. They would even dance. And with joy, they would remember that God led them with a pillar of fire um, during the Exodus. Um, okay. Earlier, he said he was the living water because there's a whole water ceremony with the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this is what's interesting. Every night they would do this big, huge, three torches. The last night, no torch, darkness, indicating that we know that we're sinners. We need God's light to lead us again. So there in a much darker surrounding for Jesus to say, <clears throat> excuse me, I am the light of the world the light you've been looking for. I want you to notice it doesn't say I am one of the lights. Buddha, Confucius, um, Joel Osteen, Muhammad, uh, Allah. I'm just one of many lights. Is that what it says? No. Christianity is very narrow, folks, because truth is narrow. He says, I am the singular one light for the whole world, not for the Jews, but for the entire world. It's an astounding claim, especially in the absence of light. They all understood what it meant that last night. Don't light the torches. I'm the light of the world. Let's look at what else he says. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, all through the Old Testament, light pictures God's presence. The first thing that happens in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Holy Spirit, remember, is brooding or moving over the surface of the waters. And God says, let there be what? Light. First thing, he creates lights, plural, meaning the sun, the moon, the stars, and all that on day four. First thing that is created is light itself. Remember that darkness is nothing. It's the absence of something, the absence of light. Light is a symbol of God's creation, of his purity, of his uh, holiness, the fact that he reveals. We're going to talk about what light does um, in a second here as well. Um, notice also the word follows. Um, we're back in verse 12. Whoever follows me. Now, you do not follow someone who's standing still. 
So Jesus is saying, whoever follows me, it's in a way the same thing as saying, whoever believes in me, whoever receives me as their savior, whoever is born again, all ways of saying the same thing. But here follows because they were used to the Jews. They, we fought, the Jews followed the pillar of fire, the light at night. Remember all that? That gave them comfort. Human beings are, for the most part, naturally, innately afraid of darkness. It's uncomfortable. You ever in a room at 10 at night and all the lights go off, you know, the power goes off. It's a weird feeling, isn't it? TV goes silent, everything just, wow. And you're feeling for a flashlight or your phone or, or a match or something. Light is comforting. Light reveals things. He's going to say, follow me, whoever follows me. Well, where is he going? If I said, follow me, you might want to ask, well, wait, where are you going? You're going to the cross. Follows me means follow me, take up your own cross and die to yourself. He's going to die. We are to die to self. But the good news is if you follow Christ on the earth, you will follow him all the way to heaven, guaranteed. Because he's leading you as the pillar of fire did to the promised land. He's leading you and I to the real promised land, heaven right? Heaven on earth with God, Christ reigning. Um, he's contrasting spiritual darkness, which they know they're in. Um, light reveals everything as it is. Imagine living in your house, living in your house in total darkness. And then suddenly the lights come on and you see, oh, I didn't even know that was dirty. And I didn't even know there was a, a mouse living under that chair or whatever. Light reveals things as they are. Light is comforting. Light is warmth. Um, God compares his word um, to a light uh, in the Old Testament, uh, a light to our paths, remember? So we're told to follow him. He's not moving. He's not standing still. He's moving. We are to follow him. Now, the Jews considered several things to be their light. Is this scriptural? In a sense, but not ultimately. They considered the whole Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, the Torah, to be their light. They considered the temple to be their light. And they considered even Adam. That's a weird one to me because he had one command and he failed, right? Adam as their light. Um, so they need the light. He's offering them graciously the light. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me, it's an invitation to follow him, will never walk in darkness. Have you ever walked in darkness? You can trip over something. You can bang your shin. You can fall off a cliff walking in darkness. Walking in light is so much better. But the bad news is when the lights come on, when you're walking in the light, Christ is revealed. That's good. The word of God is suddenly more clear walking in the light. Your own sin is also revealed. And that's the uncomfortable part because um, let's keep your finger here. Go back to uh, John three for a second. I want to show you something about light. John three is where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Uh, let's see, pick it up in verse 19, John three, verse 19. Are you still awake? Wave and say, amen. So I know you're awake. Okay. Good. A lot of hands. Good. I, I see you, Alan and Richard and Bonnie. Okay. John three, 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. He's talking about himself. 
but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. Of course, he don't want it to be exposed, right? And will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. I want to know what my sins are so that God can deal with them and I can deal with them. So that it may be plainly seen that what he has done has been done through God. Go back to chapter 7 again, if you will. Or chapter 8, I mean, sorry. Okay, there we go. Um, almost time for a two minute break, but not yet. Um, cause you've been sitting on the couch too long. Just kidding. So have I, he in chapter six, chapter seven, chapter eight is very Jewish. He's dealing with the emblems, the symbolism in the old Testament wanderings that we call them types, meaning they point to something else, which, what do you mean, Joe? Chapter six, he's the bread from heaven. Remember manna? Chapter seven, he is um, the water, the living water. Chapter eight, he's the light of the world. The same metaphors he's using and saying, I fulfill all of those. Verse, so that's, I'm the light of the world. By the way, in Matthew more expanded teaching. He probably said this on more than one occasion. In Matthew, he says, I'm the light of the world. And then later he says, you, Christian, are the light of the world. You are to so reflect the, the sun, S-O-N, of God, the way the moon reflects the sun, S-U-N, that people will come to the light. A Christian life lived in obedience is a very contagious, in a good way, an attractive thing. So, um, yeah, we already talked about that. Um, never walk in darkness, but we'll have the light of life. One more place, detour, John chapter one, light of life. Go back to John one with me, John chapter one, uh, verse four, talking about the word, which is Christ. We, we learned from verse 14, the word became flesh. It's Jesus. Look at John one, verse four. In him was life. You say, big deal. I'm alive too. It's not what it's saying. It's saying inherently without somebody, without parents having to give him life, he inherently had life because that's God. God has life inherently. That's why his name in the Old Testament is I am. This, by the way, I am the light of the world is the second I am. First one, there's seven in this gospel. The first one was, I'm the bread of life. This is the second one. And the bread of life, the thing you need for sustenance to sustain your, your life, to give you life. Now I'm the light of the world, the thing you need to understand for revelation to see. Um, verse four, in him was life. I'm still in John one. And that life was the light of men. The thing that men need for life is Jesus Christ. And that's the light that they need to be able to see that. And it's not something we have innately. We have asked to be revealed to us. Okay. Um, so um, they're in the darkness. They can't see his light. They, oh, I know. God, gosh, I'm sorry. So many detours. Go to Revelation chapter 21. I'll show you an interesting verse about your future. Revelation, last book of the Bible, easy to find. Revelation 21. Um, and what verse, you ask? Uh, I don't know, I answer. I have to look at my notes. Um, Revelation 21, verses 23 
and 24. He's talking about the heavenly city that comes down out of heaven where you're going to live. And so will I with Jesus reigning. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. God's there with us forever. He'll be our God, we'll be his people. Verse 23, no need for PG&E. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. And the lamp is, the lamb, sorry, is its lamp. Jesus Christ lights that city with his presence. The nations, verse 24, will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. The gates will never be shut, et cetera. It goes back from there. Um, go back to John chapter eight, and let's take our two minute break and stretch our aging bodies. Um, and I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. All right. We are back in uh, John chapter eight. Find your seats, if you will. Hopefully you stretched and grabbed a snack and vacuumed the room too. No, just kidding. All right. Jesus just said he's the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whole different perspective. That's what we have. Revelation. Uh, God revealing himself because of Jesus Christ, because we're born again. That's how we have his light. Verse 13, the Pharisees got on their knees and believed. Wrong. My granddaughter loves that when I do that. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Now, they had a thing about in the Old Testament you have to have two or three witnesses for anything. It was primarily for trials, court stuff, but it was true about anything. And that's true in the Bible. There's no one verse about resurrection or belief in Christ or repentance or forgiveness or grace or mercy. There's, it's in multiple places. There's at least two witnesses for every major doctrine, usually way more than that. They're saying, all you're doing is calling attention to who you are yourself. Um, and that's not right that you're the witness. They can't see the light because they're blind. They live in darkness, the religious leaders. Um, so their, their point is that you can't just say, bear witness of yourself. Therefore, your testimony is invalid. Translation, it's a lie. They're accusing him of lying. Verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own, behalf. My testimony is valid for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going, but you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. He's saying two things. The greater knowledge that he has, and he's going to explain what he means by that, is reason enough for the fact that his testimony is valid if he testifies about himself. Okay. But the other reason he gives about his testimony being valid or true is this, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. I know my eternity in the past. I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. Earlier in this gospel, he says he came from heaven, but usually he says he came from God. So what he's actually saying there is, the reason I can testify about myself is I have knowledge you don't have. I know 
God, because I am God. I know God the Father. I know where I came from. He doesn't mean Bethlehem. He doesn't mean Nazareth. He means I came from heaven. I have a higher plane of of knowledge than you do, spiritual knowledge you don't have. I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. Now, he's going to the cross and then the grave, but he's going to heaven, right? In little over six, seven and a half months, right? He's going to ascend to heaven. I know where I'm going back to heaven. I know all about heaven. I know all about God. That's way higher knowledge that you guys don't have. You, verse 15, he says, judge by human standards. You're judging on the surface, external facts, and it's human nature to do that, right? You judge by human standards, comparing their judgment with him. I pass judgment on no one. Isn't that amazing? Could he? Yeah, he's God. Will he? Yes, in the future. All judgment has been handed over from God the Father to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead at the end. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. What he really means is yet. He's not there to judge this first time. There's so much sin everywhere he looks. All he could do is be pointing out sin because he knows innately what each person's sin is, even though they're acting all holy. He knows you're a thief, you're an adulterer, you're whatever, uh, selfish. I pass judgment on no one. The first time he comes, he comes in grace to offer salvation and pay for the sins of the world. The main reason he comes is to die on the cross for you and me, rise from the dead, ascend to heaven. So, um, yeah, God has committed all, Father has committed all judgment to the Son. That's John 5. Um, Verse 16, but if I do judge, my decisions are right because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father. He's saying everything I do and say and judge, everything is in absolute agreement with God. The Father who sent me. Again, indicating I know where I came from. Father sent me. I know where I'm going. I'm going back to the Father. Everything I'm doing is God's will. In other words, he's more qualified to give witness because of his superior, higher plane knowledge. He's God in human flesh. If he did judge, he'd be right. He reveals the Father. That's John 1.18. Um, everything he's doing is by divine authority. So he's authorized to give witness. He can. Let's keep reading. In your own law, verse 17, it is written that by the, that the testimony of two men is valid. He's agreeing with them. It does take two, two witnesses for something to be verified as being true. Verse 18, I'm one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Now, how has he born, testified for himself? Verbally, we just heard him, and other times I'm the bread of life, I'm the manna that came down from heaven. He has testified that he is God, right? But he's testified beyond just his words. The miracles, walking on water, calming storms, healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing lepers, casting demons out right? Multiplying loaves and fishes. How many more miracles do you people need to see? This guy's God in human flesh. Who else could do this? So the one testimony, he's saying you want two witnesses. Here's one. It's me. 
Look at my life, sinless. Listen to my words, the wisdom, the grace, the forgiveness. Look at the uh, testimony of my father. You say, when did the father testify about Jesus? The whole Old Testament, right? There's tons of verses about the Messiah and his being God in human flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Um, also the witness of the miracles, the witness of Christ's words, but the father spoke, if you remember, at the baptism of Jesus with John the Baptist. You remember, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The father testified with Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son, hear him. So there's the witness Jesus gives of himself and his miracles. The other witness is the father. You could also, if you're calling more witnesses, you could say John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He must increase, I must decrease. He's so great, John the Baptist says about Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. There's all kinds of witnesses, but he's names two here, the, the father and himself. No human, listen, can authenticate a divine relationship fully. It's a whole different plane. He's saying, my father and I are from that spiritual plane far above the earthly, worldly plane where you guys judge, uh, and I'm qualified to testify. I am, uh, let's see, verse 19. Then they asked him, where is your father? Jesus replied, you don't know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father as well. Okay. He just said, my other witness is the father and they know he means God, but verse 19, where is your father is meant to be an absolute insult. Okay. They know that the word is some of them know supposedly this Jesus guy had a virgin birth. His mother hadn't been married yet didn't have any relations with her fiance, Joseph, and had uh, Jesus with God as his father. But the rumors were that Jesus was illegitimate. Okay, so this is a, meant as a real slur, an insult. Where is your father? By the way, Joseph is almost certainly dead by now, dies very young. And Jesus says, you don't know me or my father. And he's going to show us in a second here that to know him is to know the father and vice versa. Jesus replied, if you knew me, you'd know my father also. Do you want to know about God, the father? Look at Jesus. Read the gospels. Watch how he reacts to people. Watch the things he does, the absolute love and grace that he has. The more you study Jesus, the more you'll learn about the Father. Jesus says he's the light of the world. God is light. Jesus is loving. God is love, we know from the Bible. God is revealed in Jesus Christ. I wish God would just come down and reveal himself. You ever hear people say that? He has, right? I wish God would speak. He has. Do you own a Bible? Open it up. Dust it off. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. What he's intimating also is a thing we call in our culture a family resemblance. You ever heard of that? Oh, I see the family resemblance, Bill. You look a lot like your dad, Harold, or whatever, right? As much as there's a family resemblance, 
they never look exactly alike or very rarely, but they do when you're talking about Jesus Christ and his father. Absolute family resemblance. If they had known God from the Old Testament and then witnessed Jesus and heard his words and seen the things he did, they would have said, it's the same. This is God in a man's body. You don't know me or my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. See, that's not true for any human being. I can't say that. If you knew, if you know me, you know my dad. Now, my dad loved me. He was a great guy. He was my hero. Um, died at 96 in the year 2013. But I can't say, if you know me, you know my father. We're different, right? He fought in World War II. He was a boxer. All kinds of things that I'm not, right? But Jesus can say, if you knew me, you'd know my father also. Verse 20, he spoke these words. This is a little setting thing that John inserts. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. He's right there in the temple area. Now, where he is, is the treasury area. Um, there were 13 ram's horn things, large things, usually brass, I believe, that were almost like um, one of those old Victrola uh, record players that would just be almost like a giant funnel that you people would put money into to pay their temple tax to donate to God, donate to God's work, donate to the work of the temple and the priests. 13 of them were in this area called the treasury. Okay, the interesting thing about this is right next to that was the building where the Sanhedrin met, 71 Jewish leaders and the high priest, 72. Oh, no, I'm sorry, 70 plus one, I think it is. Um, right next door, they may be in there plotting his death, whispering in hushed tones, and he's out there saying, I'm the light of the world. If you knew me, you'd know my father. Pretty amazing, pretty gutsy and bold that he's not afraid of them. He's teaching right there. And that's why John mentions, um, yet no one seized him because his time, his hour had not yet come. God is dictating his timetable. He has total immunity. They can't harm him until he's supposed to get arrested. When he does, there'll be seven shams of trials and he'll be killed while they're killing the lambs for Passover on the eve of Passover. Um, so he's teaching there. His time hasn't come. Verse 21. Once more, Jesus said to them, speaking again, Jesus, we get to hear a Jesus sermon again. Oh, I know what I forgot to mention. There should be a family resemblance among Christians for their God, not to the extent of Jesus, we don't perfectly reveal the Father, but people ought to see the way we speak, the way we love, the way we forgive, the way we are gentle and generous and loving, and they ought to say, that's that's like what I would think God would be. We ought to be bringing glory to God and Christ because of our witness, because of the way we live. Um, the best wit Christian witness is not to get the right words together. The best Christian witness is a life lived in submission to God that people recognize, boy, that's different. I want that. Like I said, it's contagious in a good way. A family resemblance between Christians and their God. We ought to look and sound more and more like God. That's what sanctification is. 
Verse 21. See you later. That's my uh, paraphrase. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away pretty soon. And you will look for me and you will die in your sin, singular. Where I go, you cannot come. Wow. What's going on here? So first of all, they misunderstand, of course. Um, Look at verse 22. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? This is another slur. We'll come back to verse 21 in a second. 22 is another slur. It's another insult. But Jews in their writings, this was not in the Old Testament scriptures, but Jews had a teaching that people that committed suicide had the worst part of of hell, basically, that they were damned. Um, So they're kind of hoping, oh, good, will he kill himself? Now go back to 21. I'm going away. What does he mean? Taking a little vacation to the Bahamas? No. What's he saying? In about six months, I'm going away. He's prophesying his own death, resurrection, and eventually ascension. I'm going away to heaven. And you will look for me. Now, does he mean the Pharisees are going to search for Jesus of Nazareth? A little they did because they wanted to find the dead body. After they, you know, the rumor is Jesus rose from the dead. All the Jews would have had to do, all the Romans would have had to do, bring the carcass, bring the corpse over here again. Let's show everybody here he is. He's still dead. They couldn't do that. That's not what he means here. He means you the Jews will look for me, Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew, the Christ from now on. And for 2000 years, almost folks, the Jews have still been waiting for, looking for the coming of Messiah because they missed the first time when he came. They didn't believe he, most didn't believe he was the Messiah. I'm going away. We know what that means. And you will look for me and you will die in your sin. What he's saying there is that for a person to die in an unsaved state is what he's talking about. I don't believe in Jesus. I'll take my chances. That person, if that attitude stays until he dies, that person is dying in his sin, meaning the guilt still is on that person. The punishment is about to be on that person. And There is no salvation. Why? Because Christianity is narrow. Because Jesus says, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Here it comes. Listen to the exclusivity. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the light of the world. I am the bread. I'm not one of many different types of bread. You can have French bread, Italian bread, hamburger buns, sourdough bread. I am the bread. I am the life. I am the way. That's another one of the I am statements, by the way. Um, They're going to seek their Messiah and their sins will be still on them. Why? Because they rejected the one way in to heaven. They can't follow where he's going. They'll die. That's what he's about to say. They'll die in their sins. Either you pay for your sins forever after the judgment, or Jesus paid on the cross. It's the only two options. One is a lot better than the other. Amen. Um, You ever hear people say, I want what I deserve. 
not in Christianity, you don't. Maybe at work, you've been working hard, you deserve a, a pay raise or a bonus. Not in Christianity, not with God. We deserve hell. We receive heaven because our sin and shame is taken by Jesus on the cross because we believe in him. We don't want what we deserve. We want what Christ deserves. So um, he's contrasting in a way his death with theirs. Watch. Um, so you'll look for me and you'll die in your sin. You will die in your sin. I'm going away. That was talking about his death. You will die in your sin. Talking about their death. Last phrase in 21, where I go, you cannot come. Just as he said to the thief on the cross, the only person he said, said it to um, while he was on the earth, you're going to heaven. You know, remember what he said? Truly, I tell you, this day you'll be with me in paradise. You made it. Of all people, it's the thief on the cross. There's the grace of God because he professed faith. These people, he's telling just the opposite. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Where's he going? Heaven. He's saying, you can't come there. You can't possibly be good enough. You are rejecting me, the one door, which is another one of the I am's, by the way. I'm the door. I'm the gate. Remember that? That'll come up later in this gospel. They reject him. Where I'm going, you cannot come. You are in an unsaved state, and in an unsaved state, you're going to stay. We who believe follow Jesus. Remember that? Whoever follows me. We follow him through life. We follow him through persecution, which could be coming in America. Don't be surprised. Already is to some extent. We may follow him even to martyrdom, God forbid, but it might happen. But eventually we follow him to heaven. To you and I, he would say in verse 22, uh, sorry, verse 21, you will look for me and you will find me and you won't die in your sin. Verse 21, he says to believers, because I took your place. And where I go, you can come. In fact, he's coming back to come and get us. Is that awesome or what? Um, you'll look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. First, we, we said earlier that truth is very narrow. I use this analogy a lot. Three plus two is five. That's the right answer. There's one answer to three plus two, it's five. There's a lot of wrong answers. Three plus two is 11, wrong. Three plus two is 88, wrong. They're all wrong. Truth is narrow. Okay, verse 23. Now that I'm, are you still awake? Say amen, wave, so I know you're awake. And it's good to get some circulation in your arms anyway, some of you especially. Okay. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Verse 22. Uh, 22, yeah, will he kill himself? Where I'm going, you cannot come. Kind of a silly thing, right? Does he die by killing himself? No, he dies by giving his life up, offering himself as a human sacrifice in our place. Do you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about God choosing people. There's a long line member out in the middle of a meadow of human beings, and you come to the line and you go, what is this line? You tap the person at the end of the line, and the guy says, this is a line for people that have sinned and deserve punishment from God. Get in line. So you get in line. And Jesus comes and takes certain people out of line. Beautiful. But there's more. Jesus gets into that line and takes our place on death row and dies a horrible death that we deserve. 
because he lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He was the worthy sacrifice. Okay, is he going to kill himself? Verse 22, verse 23, but he continued, you're from below. I am from above, contrast. You're from this world. You judge a certain way. You're living in darkness. That's why you need my light. You're from below. I am from heaven, whole higher plane of existence. No comparison. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I mean, no disrespect by this. Please don't take it the wrong way. But in a sense, he's saying, you're of this world. You're earthly. I'm not. It's almost like he's saying I'm an extraterrestrial. I don't mean an alien from outer space, from some other planet. Don't get me wrong. But he's saying I'm not of this world. It may look like it. I've got a physical body um, and I eat and drink and sleep just like you do. I'm not of this world. Pretty amazing. Okay. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. Verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, plural. Sin as a general state of being, this verse, sins, plural, each individual sin. You're dying in each individual sin. Revelation chapter 20, we find out God keeps books. And books are open, not for believers, for unbelievers. And every single thing they ever said, did, or thought that was breaking God's law and the ultimate sin of unbelief will be revealed and judged. Um, let's see. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that, I am. That's how the Greek reads. If you didn't, the, Why would people die in their sins? Because they don't believe that Jesus is I am. You say, who's that? That's the name of God in the Old Testament. Moses is told by God, I want you to lead my people. Remember the burning bush? They have that conversation, Exodus, I think it's three. And Moses says, well, who do I say sent me when I go try to lead these people? And God says, I am that I am. So you should tell him, I am sent you. I am means a self-existent being that has life in himself. No beginning, no end, not I was, not I will be, I am. That's the name of God. So he's saying, if you don't believe that I am, NIV gets this wrong here, by the way, um, I am the one I claim to be. In the Greek, it reads, if you do not believe, I am. In other words, it's not enough to say, I believe in Jesus. Okay, tell me what you believe. I think he was a great teacher, a really good guy. I think he was a prophet. Pretty good. A miracle worker. Yeah, pretty good too. Yeah. A holy man. Oh, yeah, great. Unless you believe Jesus was the son of God, fully God and fully man. Otherwise, his sacrifice on the sin, if he's just a man, there's been a lot of male great teachers and female great teachers, right? Whoever dies on a cross doesn't have any effect for you and me unless they're the sinless son of God. You have to believe in him as he is, right? You can have your own theories, but unless it's biblical, unless you can back it up with scripture, forget it. Unless you believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. Ultimately, the, the commonly held belief is incorrect, which is the sinners go to hell and they deserve it, those dirty sinners. And the Christians are the good people because their good deeds outweighed their bad deeds and they went to heaven. 
wrong. Biblically, we're as much sinners, sometimes more, as the ones that don't believe. The ultimate reason for going to hell is you refuse the one way in. I don't want Jesus. I'll take my chances. That's the worst thing there can be. That's the most dangerous thing you can say. This is a serious warning, not only to them, but to everybody that doesn't believe. The idea of dying in your sins. You say, can't the people pay for their sins with good deeds? Impossible. There aren't enough good deeds you could do. Well, what would it take to pay? Old Testament and new. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, payment for sins, erasing of sins, forgiveness of sins. Okay, so if I die by the shedding of blood, you're not holy. It doesn't matter. Jesus died for the sins of the world. He's the only way to heaven. Um, Again, truth is narrow, right? Um, Acts 4, by the way, is also narrow. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. No other name. What about? It doesn't matter. No other name. Uh, The only way to the Father. Uh, Verse 25. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins, verse 24. Verse 25, who are you, they asked. Just just what I've been claiming all along, Jesus replied. Okay, this is sarcastic, verse 25. They're kind of saying, who do you think you are? Who are you? But the beauty of verse 25 is that finally in chapter 8, the Jews are finally asking the question John keeps hammering home. It's all about who this Jesus guy is. And here we are all the way eight chapters in, almost nine chapters in, and they finally ask the question, who are you? I wish he had a bell. I think Jesus would have rang the bell and went ding, ding, ding. Very good. You're finally asking the right question. But all he does to answer is he says, just what I've been claiming all along. Look through the record. Read chapter 7 and 6 and 5 and 4 and 3 and 2 and 1. Uh, he's been claiming a thousand different ways to be God. His actions prove it. The miracles, the wisdom, the forgiveness, that he forgives sins, raises people from the dead. Everything has been speaking to the fact that he is deity. Just what I've been claiming all along. But they do ask the final question. By the way, in Greek, it reads like this. Who are you? The you is emphatic. There's a way to phrase it in Greek where it becomes emphatic. It's the emphasis word. Who are you? Um, But they're showing their hatred by the way they're asking. They're not really asking because we really want to know who you are. They're asking me, who are you? Verse 26. I have much to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me is reliable, and what I have heard from him, I tell the world. There he's saying, I got books I could open and start reading in judgment of you. Keep in mind, he's omniscient, meaning all-knowing. He could go through, he could point somebody out in the crowd and go, September 3rd, this is what you did. October 14th, you did this, you did that. He'd be there all day, right? Because he knows every single thing they did that was a sin that they thought or said or did. I have much to say in judgment of you, but that's not what he's there for the first time. But he who sent me is reliable. And what I've heard from him, I tell the world. He's saying in a veiled way, again, the one who sent me, that's God the Father, is totally true, totally reliable. And for that reason, What I've heard from him, 
I tell the world. It's the same thing he said a chapter ago. My words are not my own. What you're hearing me say, are this is God's words coming out of this mouth is what he's saying. It's an awesome thing. Uh, he's saying that, that what he's saying is absolutely true because it's from God. Um, verse 27, they did not understand that he was telling them about his father. This is John's little parenthetical. They still don't get it. They're thinking on earthly terms. Why don't they get it? It seems so clear because you have the Holy Spirit. You're walking in the light. They are in total darkness. You can try to explain to someone that's completely impaired vision-wise, that's blind. You can try to explain the sun or a blue sky or the ocean, but if they can't see it, they can't see it. These people are darkness in darkness spiritually, and they can't understand that he's talking then about the father in heaven. His words are the father's words. Um, let's see. Oh, one commentator wrote day and night are alike to the blind. Westcott wrote that. Um, so uh, all the sins he could name of theirs, it could expose their pride, their, their, all their sin, their hypocrisy, greed, hatred of the light, stubborn unbelief, the biggest sin of all. Let's keep rolling. We're almost out of time. Verse 28. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am not the one I claim to be. Again, NIV gets it wrong. Uh, some translations have that. When you have lifted up the son of man, then you'll know that I am and that I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the father has taught me. You think you love God, you Jewish leaders. These are all the words of God that are coming out of my mouth. Okay. What does he mean at the beginning of that verse 28? When you've lifted up the son of man, he means the cross which will be a very revealing thing when he dies for the world. Oh, so they're all going to believe when he, no, that's not what he's saying. Lifted up off the ground. Commonly what they would do is the crucifixion victim would carry the cross beam. Um, gosh, it's at the patellum. I want to say, I might be wrong. Carry the cross beam to the site of the crucifixion. They would lay the victim down on a, a vertical pole and attach the horizontal pole, um, the cross beam, to the vertical pole, sometimes with rope, sometimes with nails, uh, it, it varied. But they would lift eventually the victim up very high so he could be seen on the pole, having been nailed to the crossbeam and the, his feet to the vertical pole. They would lift him up usually, and then the pole would go into a hole that had been uh, cored out of the rock or earth there. When you Lift up, let's see, where am I? When you've lifted up the Son of Man at the crucifixion, then you'll know that I am. Now, he's speaking this in a general sense. Who's really hearing and understanding? The ones that he knows will in the future believe, who don't now. Um, he sees the cross as his exaltation. Some things will be revealed then that will make it clear to those that are the ones that will be saved. Um, like what you say when he's crucified number one the sun is darkness is darkened in the middle of the day and it's not an eclipse okay so that would convince some people perhaps what else 
by the way, the way he died. Remember the Roman centurion says, watching him, the way he died, surely this was the who? Son of God. The sun is darkened in the middle of the day. Then he very graciously gives the Jewish leaders an unbelievable sign. There's also an earthquake. You remember that? What's the sign for the religious leaders? Their temple that they love so much has a thick curtain. Josephus said it's the thickness of a man's hand. It's been added to year after year after year. It's a thick curtain that separates the regular place the Jews could worship from the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelt, where the Ark of the Covenant was. That curtain, Josephus writes about it, it was so strong, you could get two teams of horses, tie it to one team, tie it to the other team, and whip the horses, and they'd run in opposite directions, and they couldn't tear it. That curtain was torn in the temple from the top to the bottom. Why from the top to the bottom? To show that it was God that did it. To show that now that he had died, the separation between people seeking to worship God and their God himself, his presence was now opened up because of the cross. Another thing that occurred um, three days later, another thing that occurred rises from the dead. These signs convinced many, many believed. Uh, John 12, 32 talks about that. Even some of the Pharisees still were kind of closet believers at this point, but they believed eventually. Um, let's close with prayer at this point and, um, and quit. Please be in prayer, everybody, for our nation. There's a COVID outbreak going on this um, variant thing. I've heard there's a new variant, even newer than the other variant, the Delta one. Um, I don't know about all that, but I know that God is greater than any disease. By the way, if you're worried about COVID, read Psalm 91 after we sign off. Um, Psalm 91, very appropriate. Play, pray for our country, for all the ones we prayed for today that have COVID, that are in the hospital, that are home, very, very sick. My pastor is home sick with COVID. Many others around the world, pray for them. Let's close with prayer and then we'll get out of here. Bow your heads with me and pray with me, please. Lord, thank you for this study and the people that want to study your word over this little electronic box. It's an amazing thing, God. Thank you for the grace uh, of a woman that was, instead of being judged, he stoops down to her level, the woman caught in adultery, and tells her to go and stop her sinful life, repent. What a beautiful thing. She called him Lord. Maybe she believed. Maybe we'll meet her in heaven. Who knows, God? But thank you for that grace that stoops down to the sinner's level and draws us to the Savior. Thank you that your son is the light of the world not the sun, S-U-N, the sun, S-O-N. Thank you that that light is shining in our lives. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here studying the word together. Thank you that that word, that light leads us somewhere. Like it led the Jews, it'll lead us all the way to the end of our lives and to heaven. Thank you that the light means no more fear of darkness. Help us to walk in your light every day. Make us reflective lights that shine in a dark world to others around us, God. Make us more like your son, Jesus. Thank you for this time and for each one here. Um, I wish I could hug each one, but hopefully next week we'll, I'll hug the ones that are coming in person if we meet. 
I will email and let everyone know. Thank you, God, for this time, for your spirit that does the teaching and the leading and makes your word come alive. We pray these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you all for being here. I'm going to turn off my video and microphone, but I'm going to come back on in about 10 minutes and try to unmute everyone. Um, but for now, I'm going to sign off and I'll be back in about 10 minutes. God bless you. Thanks for being here.